Hey everyone, it's Amber Love at Vodka Clock Podcast, and of course from AmberOnMath.com. Don't forget we are an explicit website and podcast, though um, I'm sure we'll be talking about some very tame things today. However, if you visit the website and you're easily offended and you're under 18, you should probably not be there. So, um, today we're going to talk about um, some particular comics, and uh, it won't be too spoilery, but you know, we're going to be talking about things and how to make them and... Uh, this is something that is always great fun to do with my returning guest, Jeremy Holt, who is kind enough to come back like every five or six months. And um, it's awesome because then, you know, we get all this indie creator insight. So it's wonderful. So, uh, Jeremy, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. And uh, it's really easy to schedule a time with you. Like, um <laughs> it's like with other people, it's like, oh, I might be free in like two months. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and in the time zone thing, because I'm trying to get trying to get Mike Perkins back, and I'm like, oh, what time are you again? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I will be catching up with Mike uh, very soon, which will be great. Um, so, the last time you were here, we were talking about the one shots that you had out, like Pulp, yeah. and then you had a book out from Dynamite Comics, which was part of their Pathfinder series called Goblins. So um, those uh, I, I didn't get to, te- to check out Goblins, but Pulp I was a huge fan of. So how were they received? Did you you know did you notice differences in audiences or anything particular? Um, the Goblins book uh, I, I did follow a few reviews of it. Um, I think that was mostly the extent of it, mostly because the the miniseries that I was a part of had you know multiple different stories. Uh, from a variety of writers and artists. So, um, yeah, but, you know, I read a couple of nice things that were said about it, which was cool. Um, and uh, as far as Pulp, Pulp's been doing well. Um, it's gotten a lot of really good reviews, which continue to surprise me and Chris Peterson, the artist. And uh, we had interest from someone in Spain that loved it so much that he wanted to do a translation in Spanish. That's, that's very cool. Yeah, so, that, so we had that done. Uh, recently, um, so that's ready for print if we wanted to print it in Spanish. But uh, the exciting thing is that there was a um, there is a filmmaker that read it and loved it and wants to adapt it into a short film. So I'm talking with him now about starting maybe a Kickstarter in the summer. Um, what we do is the main. I guess uh goal is to fund the short film, which, you know, we want a pretty decent budget because he, he's really, really talented. I've checked out his work. Um, uh, this guy, Jim Cooper and, uh, you know, with the right budget, we can make it look really great. Um, he's already got a lot of stuff going as far as who he might cast and locations and props and special effects and all that. So, um, we would do that, raise the money for the film, but also as, as, uh, rewards would be the printed comic, which is already done because a lot of comic book kickstarters, you know, you're paying to get that comic completed, but we already have the comic completed. Um, so we would offer that as well as the Spanish version, as well as the Spanish subtitled version of the film. So it would be available to both markets. Um, that's the, that's the bare bones of the Kickstarter. Now we're thinking about some other stuff to add and whatnot, but. Um, yeah, it's kind of nerve-wracking. Never done a Kickstarter, so that should be interesting. Kickstarter is definitely the way that people are going these days, um, and it's it's one of those things where 
it's hard because as a consumer, you want to um, analyze things like the cover price of a book and you set aside a budget or, you know, especially if you go to a con. I like I, that's why I really like going to cons and buying books directly from people. Um, but with Kickstarter, you need the book made in most cases. So it's you're always paying a little bit more than you would even for whatever the cover price of something is. And um, at that point, you're basically like doubling your comic budget. If you're, yeah. <laughs> if, if you're like me and you're just like ha- most of your comics come through Kickstarter these days. I mean, other than press copies of stuff, my books come through Kickstarter. Oh, um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, you know, and you fund 10 or $12 or something and it's a, you know, like a $5 book. It's like, okay, I understand. And then there's shipping, whatever. And it's like, and you need to do it because they have all those fees, but, um, but it just, it, it's harder on a consumer level, but it's the market these days is totally, totally changed. I mean, Kickstarter and the, and crowdsourcing in general just completely changed that now folks like you and I don't need to stress like have heart attacks stressing over pitching to to publishers totally. just because they're they're in previews or something. Yeah, that's true. And and the whole thing with Comicsology submit program, even though you know it can take a while for them to get a book up there that's self published, um, it's still an avenue, still an option. Definitely. Yeah, I know. I know several people who have done that. Um, I'm not sure. Like, there's just as far like Comicsology needs to sort of work on improving a little bit about how you navigate. Sure. Um, I found some really strange things through there. Like, um, for example, when I looked up 215 Inc, like it wouldn't come up in a search or something like that, but at the same, but they have a section like I've uh, like Andy's giving me like a direct link and I'm like, okay, well here they are. Here's the breadcrumb trail saying, you know, like yeah. catalog publishers 215. <laughs> and I'm like, how come, if, how come I can't just navigate it? I've seen the same thing with like, um, just image comics, actually, like uh, Skybound books won't show up under some Skybound books won't even show up under Skybound, but they'll show up under image and vice versa. So it's like I, I don't know if people at Comicsology know that they're imprints and that they're s- somewhat separate, even though they're under the same umbrella. So, um, I mean, overall, it's it's pretty good. And I, I've actually relied on it a whole lot more since moving out of a city Um because I don't have a shop. So I really didn't think I was going to be reading a lot of digital comics, but then I got an iPad and that kind of changed everything. So, yeah, me too. I, I never thought that I would, that I would adapt either. Um, mainly just like a visual issue. I didn't think that my eyes would like yeah. an electronic format, but they, but I do, I actually like, like it a lot better most of the time. Yeah. yeah. The uh, colors, like, especially if I'm reading it, uh, like in bed at night or something, like I still get the full color of the book which I really have been drawn to and, and that I can read it anywhere. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's nice cause it saves on trying to store them. Um, that's been my biggest advantage is I just don't want to deal with so many of these white boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've definitely, uh, my collection has slowed down considerably, but, uh, you know, I do pick up a trade here and there. Yeah. I love trades. Um, and again, like I said, I like to go get those directly from people at the shows. Sure. Um, which is something that you miss when if you're trying to not have that clutter and you're in your digital, you're like, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm at your table and I'm visiting you. Bye. 
Um, but it's, uh, but with, with comicsology, what's nice is that people, um, on Twitter very easily because it has like those, when you, when you buy something or if you're the creator and you want to promote the book, um, it just very easily generates, you know, like Twitter links and it goes directly to that page, which is great. Yeah. Cause then I just like, Oh, there's, you know, Paul Eller's strange nation click, you know? <laughs> So um, it definitely makes it easier. Submit, I think, is odd just because it's called submit. Because when you're when you're looking at the page and it says submit, I'm like, well, I don't want to submit anything right now without, you know, if you didn't realize that was basically a brand. Oh, right, right, right. You know, I, but that's you need to click submit in order to surf and browse. <laughs> the yeah. So it's a little awkward. Um, but it's been really really useful. Um, like I said, they just, uh, it's, you know, it's the way any database is run. You're a tech guy, you know all about it. If you put garbage in, you get garbage out. Sure. So if I'm trying to, trying to search for a creator and I can't find it, like, I can't tell you how hard it was for me to find the right Red Sonia title that I wanted. Oh, wow. I'm like, geez, you know, something like that, that's that massive and that much of a legacy, you know, there's like 13 sure, titles. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you got to navigate through all that to find what you want. Um, now, let's see. So you must have, because you published through 215 Inc. before, you've probably got stuff up there already, right? Um, yeah. I, the, the stuff that I had, I, I had through them um, is still up there. Um, one of the books I recently uh, took to a different publisher, um, and, you know, everything was fine with talking with 215 Inc. about it. Um uh, but I, I think the 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 comic is Southern Dog. I think it's still actually up on there. You can still get it through them on Comicsology, but that will be changing um, at the end of the summer. Uh, so that book is going out through another publisher, and we'll actually see print, um, which is exciting. So, but that that I'm I'm assuming that'll be updated some at some point during the summer. Okay, cool. And um, and of course, Dynamite is all over Comicsology, so. They're very easy to find. Um, now, the new book that you've been promoting is called Art Monster. Yep. And um, by the title, I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. So I was like, okay. Um, I didn't know specifically, like, what genre you were going for. And then as soon as I got through, like, three pages, I'm like, okay, this is definitely going to be a horror book. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet Jeremy Holt, what are you doing? <laughs> Um, but this is not this is not new for you because pulp had its twist. Yeah, and, um, it's horror light. It's horror light. It's it's yeah. It's got the psychological thriller to it. Yeah, there, I mean, it's not nearly as graphic. Um, mostly because of the the art style, but uh, it's not. A, I didn't write it to be super graphic. I wanted to focus. I mean, that is certainly an an element to the story, but I, I did want to focus. Because uh, it's it's mostly a character piece on um, you know a, a creative person, an artist, if you if you will, that is trying to find a medium of art that speaks to him on a on a deeper level than than it just being kind of a day to day chore he has to do. Um, and it, I mean, it it very much is a uh, commentary on my experience of going through art school and. You know, not knowing what I wanted to do and having all of these options in front of me and trying a couple different things and still really not knowing. But, you know, at some point you have to graduate. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I felt a lot like your your main character in that way, um, because I 
I didn't know what major I could possibly pick until I think like days before I was starting. Yeah. Um, and I and I stuck with it even though it was completely impractical. Um, <laughs> I, I I picked my major probably halfway through sophomore year, and I think it was maybe the end of junior year. I was like, I realized I had made a mistake, but I was already too far into the program. I really had no interest in staying in school longer than four years, so I was just like, I'm just gonna you know uh, push through it and just get it done. Yeah, my my advice to anybody if you're if you're just starting out, just do all the core courses and and don't worry about your major until you find yourself more. Unless you're one of those people that knows since you're five years old. Those people, I hate those people. Yeah, you know, I, I <laughs> love those people because my fiance is one of those people. She knew in high school that she wanted to go into art history, and now she's a professor and curator of a fine arts museum. So it's like. You know, I just marvel the the at people that that knew and and have stuck to it, and that passion has stayed consistent throughout their life. Because I was I've been passionate about lots of different things. I mean, I'm working a job that has nothing to do with my creative goals. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely it's cool to meet or even know people that uh, kind of knew from the start. So if Victor Stein, that's your your protagonist here can we call him a protagonist i mean he's oh absolutely okay he's, but he's kind of creepy it's one of those things where you always think the protagonist is like the hero the good guy yeah he's pretty creepy he's the lesser of the evils i suppose suppose that's where yeah that's where we're going um so so victor is um this lost sort of personality and he's been in school for like seven years and the dean is ready to kick him out um so what what age are we thinking that he is at this point then he's are we assuming that he started school when he was like 17? Um yeah the the average age uh let's see I wow. I must have been 21 I think when I graduated the year I graduated I must have been 21 um so he's got to be at least 24 23 24 So he is he is older than the kids that he's in school with um, but I mean, at that point, being 21 and 23 or 24 is not that different. I mean, there's, you know, it must be frustrating for him because, and it is because he is seeing all these kids pursuing what they want and they have this conviction that he just lacks. Um, so it, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a struggle for him. In a, it seems like it's just an art school or unless it's just that he's only around art students. I couldn't really. It's, it's an art school. It's an art school. So, um. And like you said, he was he's chasing this goal of trying to figure out what medium he likes. And um, I can certainly relate to that. I mean, everybody sort of chases something and is looking for something in, in their life. Um, and the very first thing that you ask the audience is, what is artistic innovation? Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, what a killer opening. Pun intended. <laughs> um, it's, you know, we had it recently, because uh, this, is, this is still like first quarter 2014. So recently, um, the entertainment industry went through this major buzz about Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. And um, everything's started snowballing 
as he lost his mind or whatever, you know, from all the plagiarism to the apologies to the fake apology and the re-apology and then this kooky art exhibit thing. Oh, my God, crazy. Which was, yeah, like... Which it, was a, which he also plagiarized, I mean... Which, right, which, I mean, it's been done. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it wasn't a particularly unique thing, but it was like, God, you're just so, you're so, like, hippie-dippie California at this point. Like, what is going on? It's, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's been interesting because I've gotten quite a few conversations about him with other friends, creators, and whatnot, and, you know, it's very clear that there are people that, you know, at this point, after that that weird exhibit, which really is is derivative of uh, Marina Abramovich's The Artist is Present, which was an exhibit that she did at MoMA several years ago, who I've actually had the pleasure of seeing some of her performances, and they're amazing. But, um, you know, after his, his little stunts with this whole, you know, apology exhibit thing, um, I have friends that are, you know, think what he's doing now is – he's coming into his own. Well, I have other friends who are like, no, it's still crap. It's still just him not owning up to anything and him hiding behind all these other, all these reasons or, or, um, lies more or less. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm kind of torn because I think, I think what he's doing, I mean, you know, there's that argument that, you know, nothing is wholly original. Everybody is influenced by something. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I think it's just, taking your own experiences and, and turning it into your own. It's like the, the best analogy I can think of is like when a, when a musician takes a song, covers it and makes that song their own. Like um, my favorite example is Jose Gonzalez who, who covered this um, Swedish band, the knife, their song heartbeats, which if you listen to the original song, it's like an electronic beat song. It's a great song, but it's heavy in the electronic music uh, scene. And then you hear Jose Gonzalez do it on acoustic guitar and it's a completely different song. It's like entirely different fundamentally in every way. Um, and that's what, you know, I try to do. It's like, you know, the story of art monster is, you know, it's my, my version of Frankenstein. Uh, right. And then, and you're not even hi- like, they're not hiding that. You're not saying it's not right. Right. And you know, I allude to it in very obvious ways. Um, but at the same time, I've, I've changed characters. I've changed, you know, the, the scene. Um, and I'm trying to basically through that story, um, I'm trying to tell my own. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think there are ways to do it. I think that you have to dig a little deeper within yourself to, you know, if you have something to say, then say it, but if you don't have anything to say, then why do it at all? Um, but you know, then again, this, you can have this whole art criticism about, about, about what he's doing, about what Shiloh was doing, because, you know, it's like, Pop art was kind of that that whole thing where we don't want to create anything new. We want to just exploit what is currently out there. Um, so it's it can become a, a very long winded, rounded ar- argument. Yeah, oh, it absolutely can. I mean, I was thinking back to um, Tilda Swinton did this, you know, performance art piece where people stood in line and paid to watch her sleep. Really? And I thought, yeah. And I'm like, okay. Like and this is art because yeah. it's in a museum and she's eccentric and everybody loves her because she's so talented and it's like I'm like but that's art I'm like okay 
Like it's weird, is what it is. It's, you know, it, it's. I mean, but but your but your point in these first few pages is that it's supposed art is supposed to make you question things, and that's what Shia's argument yes, had been. Yes. Art he's, is supposed to make. He's creating a conversation, which is what I think art is meant to do. Um, and I think if I'm going to agree with him on anything, that's really that point. Um, it's just to start a conversation. So. But yeah, I mean that's that's the story of of, of Victor who. You know, he's he's trying to find something that is more of a reflex. Um, and, you know, that can be really hard to find, especially if you don't know where to look. And uh, we see Victor and all of these other interesting, very interesting, quirky characters that you're introducing. Um, some of them a little scarier than others. Uh, and they're brought to life by Francesca. And help me out with her last name. Seregia. Uh, Okay, and she's from Italy, and um, you've got also, I wanted to give a shout out to the lettering, because I love great lettering, so thank you, Adam, for great lettering that I can read, <laughs> because it makes a difference. It certainly does. He's been, he's become like, him and I talk constantly, and, and since we've been working together for the last few months, it's been, it's been great. He's like, he just... It, he's self-taught too, which is what's so amazing about it. And uh, we met. Shut up! Yeah. No. Yeah, he's a he's a writer, and he's got a lot of great things in the works. Um, and uh, we met at I think it was Heroes Con last year, and uh, yeah, we just kept in touch. And then he he mentioned he was a letterer, and you know he he lettered a pitch of mine. I was like, well, this is really good. And then he was like, hey, if you if you want to you know have anything else, just send it my way. And then that's just how it started. And um, yeah, we we. We talk, you know, we talk shop all the time. We, we, he loves getting pages and, um, and he's shown me some of his stories. And, and so it's been really collaborative in, in a lot of different ways. So it's been great knowing him. That's great. Um, and that's Adam Wallet. Yeah, Wallet. Um, as for, uh, Francesca, it was kind of interesting because, um, she came on very last minute to the project. Um, the project originally I was uh, working on with uh, Joe Isma of Morning Glories, and uh, there was just a, a scheduling conflict that arose that he, he wouldn't be able to commit to the book. Um, so I really had to kind of scramble to find someone. And Francesca and I were working on another pitch at the time. This was, I guess, uh, September last year. And um, she read the read the first script, really liked it, and she was like, yeah. She she was interested, so she knocked out the first issue, and we've been working really hard ever since. Um, so it's uh, it's been pretty amazing. I mean, like the book originally was going to be color, but because I love her ink so much, um, I was really confident in just doing it a black and white book. Um, and I think it, I think it works really well to the story. Yeah, the inks are really solid. I mean, very defined shadows. Um, sets the tone really well and you know she's it, it's there isn't even like a gray scale it's like strictly these super super dark yeah blacks and and it's just um it's just a really nice balance because you're going through these different moods of of victor's emotions in just so many you know a few pages um and let's, uh, you've got like a pretty big team here that's all just pitching in for, for, you know, smaller parts of it. You've got somebody who helped with the colors on the cover. Mm -hmm. 
Renzo Podesta, and then the logo you, you said is uh, Tim Daniel, who's got a pro- big, huge project coming up on his own. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of projects uh, out right now, but, yeah, he's got one very big one. Yeah. So um, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot about him very soon. And what did uh, Riley Rosmo do for you? So um, we'll flash back to maybe three years ago. Um, I had met Riley at Fan Expo in Toronto, and we kept in touch. And I'd, give him a, I'd given him a pitch of mine, which he really liked. And then he reached out to me, and he was like, hey, we should work on a book together. I was like, oh, my God, absolutely. He's- Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, and he actually was the one who pitched this concept to me. He's like, I would like to do a story about what if Dr. Frankenstein went to art school instead. And having he he had gone to art school, he actually teaches at an art school. So I was like, I'm sold. That that concept is right up my alley. Um, I have a lot of personal experiences I could draw from. Absolutely. So we were working on it, um, and then he got tapped by Nick Spencer to work on Bedlam. So his schedule was immediately booked. So um, I sat on the project. I continued to write it. Um, the most he had ever done was, I think, a, a, a cover for it. Um, but I'd never actually seen any pages from him, which was uh, a little disappointing for me because I would have loved to see what his take on it. But um, I sat on it for about a, a year. And then Joe approached me about working on something. And we pitched a couple ideas back and forth. And then I had this this pitch ready to go for Art Monster, and I talked to Riley, and he's like, hey, if you want to do it with Joe, absolutely, it's yours. I was like, okay. And that's just how that went. Yeah, I, Riley's been, um, he's had a pretty fascinating career. Um, he's one of these names where it's like, everybody seems to know the name, but nobody, like, I've never I've never met him. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of oh, him. Oh, really? Like, I, I'm just like, this is like this mysterious, amazingly talented artist out there somewhere. Um, and it seems like he's been around forever. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's just this this feeling where for as long as I've been reading comics, I've just sort of seen this name. Yeah, I um, I, I the first time I saw his work was in Green Wake with Curtis's we- uh, Curtis Weeb's uh, Green Wake, which they worked on for Image, and um, I just love that book, and and I was always really enamored with his style, and uh, it was kind of a thrill to finally meet both of them actually, um, and you know I've become friends with them since then, uh, but yeah, he just He's a he's a workhorse. He just works all the time, and he he can work in the strangest conditions. Like I, uh, he, I heard he inked like three pages of a book in the back of a car while traveling to a convention. That's awesome. Um, and like, uh, he was really nice enough to give me the original cover art for Southern Dog, which is uh, he did all the covers for that, which comes out later in the year. But um, yeah, I mean he's he's just great, and like you know we'll we'll Skype occasionally and. Uh, you know, I just see him at work in his studio, and he's just he's just constantly working. He's just, but he you know he loves it, and and uh, you know he puts out really good. I think the stuff he's been putting out recently with his book Drumheller has been some of his best stuff yet. So it's it's cool to see him continuing to produce work. Well, it's interesting hearing that um, you know everybody's got their own art school experiences. And you know, and it's so strange to me because mine as well. I was when I was modeling for a sculpture class, it's a lot of time to just sit oh, yeah. and think. I mean, it's just week after week of not moving and just thinking. Um, how did you How did you get that uh, that gig? I always wondered about that when I took electron classes. Oh, um, you know, there's no agent involved when you're doing figure modeling. So it's literally just cold calling schools, trying to get in, trying to get booked. 
um, and once they, you know, realize that you're reliable and um, perform well for them, then uh, either they they call you back as often as possible. But a place like uh, like Qbert's, yeah. the Joe Qbert School, everybody wants to be in there. Right. So you had to call them and like the first before the semester even started, like you had to nail, nail it just right. What do you present like, to them when you call them? Do you like, other than introducing yourself, obviously, do you, do you have like a resume? Do you come in for an interview? Um, no, there's no interviews, I, but there's, but you need to send a portfolio. Of oh, sport. gotcha. So, um, you know, when I very first started, all I had were photography portfolios, um, but that showed that I could pose and I could model and that I was willing to take off my clothes, which is a big thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, so then when I started working for Ducray down in uh, Plainfield, New Jersey, um, you know, this is a tiny school that very few people have heard of. And um, but I had remembered Ducray, uh, the administrator, Frank, coming to my high school art class. Mm. You know, they sort of. Like the different, like somebody came from Pratt, somebody came from Parsons, like they did sort of a, you know, like a drive, if you will, to promote their, uh, their schools so that high school students would have an idea of where to go or if they wanted to go to art school or whatever. So, you know, here it was all these years later, I'm working at the places that I, you know, had considered going to art school and, um, but sitting in sculpture to, to pose for them, like I said, you know, eight, ten weeks or whatever, not moving. I also had like a story idea come to mind and it was like this brutally violent murder thing. Nice. Uh, and I'm just like, I'm so at peace <laughs> when I'm modeling and so zen and, you know, I'm like, it is really weird for this to come into my head right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I have the same moments. Um and you like, know, our school, does, our school, our school makes us murder. What is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think being around other creative people, um, I know that you know, going to an art school has a completely different vibe than a traditional liberal arts college. Um, and I mean, like, I guess the weirdest story ever I, I have about live models is that um, I had to take a lot of like drawing classes. And there were, I think like three or four models that they, the college used pretty regularly. And the, one of the male models was uh, this guy named Doyle. And he was an older man. I think he was maybe mid forties, late forties. Um, and he had a goatee and a ponytail. So he had a very recognizable look. And, you know, he was, he would chat with the students between breaks and like after class and stuff. And he seemed like a cool guy. So people just really liked him. And this was senior year. And my roommate, was a film major and was filming his senior project and had cast this guy to be in the movie and we're between scenes and, and we're talking about, you know, school. And he's like, so you guys all go to, go to Savannah college of art and design. We're like, yeah. He's like, Oh, you guys have taken life drawing, right? We're like, of course like, you, you guys didn't have a model named Doyle. Did you? We're like, yeah, Doyle's awesome. He's like, yeah, that's my dad. He's my dad <laughs> we're like, what? He's like, yeah. It's weird. We're like, now it is. Like, what are the odds? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, just just being around the students and like um, being around other creative people was uh, really important for me because I was around my friends that I ended up making in college were the ones that were very driven and knew exactly what they wanted to do. Um, 
And it took me it took me the first year of college to kind of find that that group of friends that I really clicked with. And I kind of tried out a lot of different things. I thought maybe I'll just have a lot of friends and maybe not necessarily know them really well, but just know a lot of people. And that worked great for the entire year. And like people knew who I was and I had a roommate who was very popular. So that kind of helped. And then by the start of second year, nobody remembered me because nobody kept in touch. And I was like, ah, maybe that's the wrong approach. So then I kind of just found a group of friends that, you know, I I liked hanging out with a lot and, you know, just went from there. But, um, you know, it's nice to be around like-minded people. Um, And that's the struggle with Victor's, uh, uh, I guess, journey through art school at the beginning of the story is that he's not, he doesn't really have a whole lot of friends and he doesn't have that support group to bounce ideas off of or to, get some feedback or to get some praise, you know, the, the normal things of having a friendship with someone. Um, but, you know, he does find friendship in most unusual ways with very unique people, um, which, uh, you know, leads, progresses the story, obviously. Will we see any part of Victor's home life or his family? Um, you won't. It. I've alluded to some things about his family, Um uh, there, there is a kind of a, a little nugget of insight into who his family is uh, in issue two. Um, but I think that his family could be a whole second arc um, because there was a lot of mythology behind the actual story of, of Dr. Frankenstein that I wanted to kind of really kind of go into and that I've made my own parallels to the, the original story, um, an alternate reality, if you will. Um, but I don't know if we're going to ever explore that. But uh, I did really just want to focus on his journey of finding himself and what he wants to do with his, uh, I guess, his passion now that he's found it and um, how far he's willing to take that to to accomplish uh, his end goal. Well, something that uh, Victor says, and I think it's in the beginning of, of issue two, he says um, artistic expression shouldn't feel like a job. and what I find interesting about that quote is uh, people people say that often, and then at some point they will do nothing but talk about the hard work involved. And it's like, well, then that's a job, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, and I and I realize the the perspective that you should love what you do. Because a lot of people are in jobs that are absolutely miserable, and yeah. I, for one, have been there. Yeah. Um, uh, it's you. You need to enjoy it on some level, like you said. You, you know, you work in tech, so it's not uh, necessarily creative or whatever. But you're fulfilled in that particular way. I mean, it's not. You're not hating it, and um, and then every once in a while, you get to share the anecdotes of yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> of this the stupidity of, um. of the humans humans that use the internet. Yeah. Um, and, and that's great. Sean Pryor does that too. Okay. From, uh, yeah. Sean, oh God. Sean, Sean's updates statuses can be absolutely the most hilarious thing. They, they're just like, if there needs to be like a Darwin award specifically for tech. Yes, I agree. I, I totally agree. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's, that's a good point that you make because like it, it is, um, it's a fine line be, 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 between, you know, finding something you love and, you know, pursuing it with passion but yeah there is work involved so you know where is the where's the line drawn between you know pleasure and business um 
And like I, I put a lot of hours into writing and I don't afford myself enough time at this point because I do have a day job. But when I do, like my weekends are just writing, writing, writing. Like I'll sit at my desk for anywhere between eight to 15 hours a day just writing. And I've, I've talked to other friends who, who are also writers and like their processes and, you know, some of them, you know, write for a few hours and then go do something else and come back to it. Um, but, you know, I don't have the luxury of doing it during the week. Um, so, you know, when does it, when does it not seem like a job? Um, and I don't know, like I, I like doing, it. I like putting in the work. I like feeling productive and it's taken me a while, but I've gotten to this point now where I will do a lot of work on the weekends and the more work I get done, the better I feel about going into the work week. Um, because I know I won't have that time to write. So if I don't get anything done come Monday morning, I just feel awful. And, and, you know, the day job is fine. And, and, you know, I do like fixing things and it it does, um, appeal to a a part of my brain, but it's not really what I want to do with my life. It's, I can kind of do it on autopilot. I don't really have to think a whole lot, which, which is nice because I've been doing it for so long, but um, it's just at this point, it's kind of an inconvenience having to drive 45 minutes to a job that, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat underappreciated there and I'm micromanaged a lot. And anybody who has a job that isn't their, their, you know, passion would understand that. Um, But uh, you know, there's also bills to pay. So. Exactly. And you know, and sometimes you just, you just do that. Um, uh, some people might be fortunate enough that their jobs are the sources of inspiration. Like there's, you know, novelists that, you know, were police detectives or FBI agents or medical examiners, yeah, exactly. and, and you know, and they, they end up with this, you know, lawyers even end up with this wealth of information that, you know, drives them to create instead of, you know, sticking with that procedure because it's you know those sorts of jobs are so defined yeah it's um i I read a someone had posted something about 15 famous creators that uh still hold day jobs and there was a a long list of you know some really interesting writers and composers and and whatnot um that still have day jobs like i think the most interesting one i read was philip glass who you know is this world-renowned composer and really an artist in his own right. Um, Absolutely. Does he still, I think he's like a, a technician of some sort, like fixes dishwashers and, and whatnot. And uh, he was, he had to do a job on a, in an apartment on the, I guess maybe Upper East Side. And the owner knew exactly who he was. And he's like, what are you, what are you doing in my house? Like you're, 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 you know, brilliant. Like, why are you fixing my dishwasher? And he's like, well, you know, this, this has to get done and it's broken and I will fix it. Uh, so just come back in a couple hours. <laughs> That's remarkable. Crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I know that I'm probably going to have a day job for a while. Like, I, I've accepted that. But, uh, you know, I do like that. Um, you know, I've been able to tell this story, and, and the creators involved are, are really passionate about the project. And um, so is the publisher. Monkey Brain Comics is it's a really exciting place to be right now. Um, they're just putting on a lot of great work and, and Chris and Allison who started it, you know, are really fantastic to work with. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it's an interesting avenue to go down with, with the digital comic. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I wanted to ask you, how did you, how do you feel about the shorter length of the books? 
Actually, yeah, I wanted to to talk about that because, um, you know, when we were going over what, you know, what points we wanted to discuss, um, I realized that this was uh, your first monkey brain project, correct? Yes. And um, because I've talked to, to other creators who have worked through them and the short format I thought was fantastic because um, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I'm just a, uh, I don't know if it's an attention span thing or what it is, but when I talked to uh, like Gannon Beck, uh, who was just on and uh, we were talking about space core comic his, his web comic and everything. I'm like, there's something about having, knowing that there's an arc but having something in a small enough dose mm-hmm. that you can you can absorb it and that's fine and you can always go back and it doesn't feel like a chore to go back because you're not picking up you know 60 pages yeah. to to go back and refresh yourself like i mean that's sort of like how i get trades a lot of times I'm like okay well i forget what i read in the last volume <laughs> like like oh no i have to go back um but I was surprised when I first opened the files, and I was like, "Oh, these are 13 pages." I'm like, "That's pretty sweet." I'm like, and then I was like, "You know, that's a really good amount, especially for something online." Yeah. Um, I don't. I think when you go online, it's not necessarily the sort of thing that people are, are going to invest and sit there for 60 pages at one time. Right. Right. Um, I've I've done it. It's just one of those things where you, you have to be like, okay, for this next hour. I am sitting at this monitor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's interesting because I, I'm glad that you like the shorter format. Um, I was always a little nervous about it um, because it just, it, it feels abrupt. Um, and, it does, but I think, you know, a lot of it will come down to price for people. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and it, when, you know, when you're going to kickstart anything, um, was was it Ryan Lindsay? I don't remember who it was now, but somebody just on, on Twitter was just saying, you know, make sure your Kickstarter says how many pages you are planning. Because that would, you know, like, for example, if you were doing something shorter or if you don't specify that it's one issue, people might expect a full graphic novel. That's true. And, you know, and those are just sort of like pitfalls of how you're organizing your Kickstarter. But, um yeah, I, for me, I've always been kind of a fan of the shorter format. Well, that's good. I mean, the the, the series was was originally structured to be four twenty two page issues, and I restructured it a bit so it's like a ten twelve page split between issues. Um, so the the odd numbered issues are gonna feel a little bit shorter because they're two pages shorter than the even number ones. Um, and I've actually I've gotten a lot of negative feedback on, on how it's a much shorter issue. And I think I, I went with the shorter issues because I know Monkey Brain was doing shorter issues when they initially launched. And we were talking like 10 to maybe 15 pages, um, which I, I didn't mind. I liked. Um, and then the most recent titles that they've been putting out, I, I've seen some of the creators are doing like 16, 20 pages. And, uh, it's it's made me kind of rethink how I'm going to release the the upcoming issues because um, I don't know if it would be better to continue the pacing that I have or to appease the readership and put out a full length issue just so they feel like you know they're not getting cut in in the middle of the story. It's definitely something debatable because um, I like to read in an arc, 
that's my my preference if I'm going to just sit down and dedicate time to reading. Yeah. If I'm just taking a glance at something, it's like okay. So it doesn't necessarily matter how many the, how, the page length, like how many pages is. I just want a story, and I you know. So at this point, um, you're releasing them by issue. So all of the people that are used to comics that way are gonna are gonna get what they want. They're gonna get a cliffhanger, and they're gonna you know want to know what the next chapter brings. Um, for me, I'm actually struggling the opposite way because I've got a script that's really, really long and I don't know how to get it made at the length that it's at. How, how long is it? <laughs> well, it's only, it's like 65 pages. Okay. So it's like the, it's like the size of three issues. Sure, sure. Um, and you know, the advice I was given was, you know, chop this down into chapters, even smaller, like I'm fine with chopping it down into issues, you know, like 20 to 22 page issues, mm -hmm. because I have break, I have breaks specifically already there for that. Sure. But I don't have breaks in my head anyway that I've seen. Oh, I see. Like for, for eight to 10 pages. I'm like, I guess it could be done. I'm sure a proper editor could do that for me. <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, I lived with this thing in my head for years and. I'm just kind of like, ugh, like my brain just can't even process it anymore. Yeah, no, I I totally get that. There, there's a project I'm working on now that I, I, I had I had completely scripted it. It was a five issue series. I scripted it like three or four years ago, and um, I'm kind of going back revising it um, with a publisher, and and it's been eye opening to just throw out pages. Like I I've heard of writers doing this. Like oh, I wrote ten pages, threw them out, and I I'd always kind of cringe like oh how could you do that that's so much time and then I realized you you just gotta let go sometimes and so yeah. I was able to do that you know the story is now exponentially better but um it was a little daunting to realize wow I'm throwing out a, over 100 pages of script that just will never be used but you know that's, yeah. that's building your craft it's true. It's true. I mean, like the only time I ever took a stab at writing a novel, literally half of it could be pitched. Yeah. Because it starts, it doesn't start really picking up until then. Like I have, I have way too much back detail that I felt was important to like me getting to know my own characters, but stuff that doesn't need to come out the way that it came out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because you, you know, you're talking about these other people who just seem to do it without a problem. Um, Josh Stallings is a, a novelist. That I, I got to know at BoucherCon, and on his Twitter, he just said the same thing. He's like, "Yeah, I just spent all day writing and throwing it all out. <laughs> Start again tomorrow." Yeah, you know, I've really, literally, his, it's I, I've learned to rely on on the the process of revising. Like I, I four or five years ago, I would have revised a script maybe once or twice and felt good about it. I look back on some of those scripts and I'm like, this needs a lot of work. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I still do it even when I get art pages from a script. I actually will totally revise dialogue once I see the art because sometimes it just doesn't work and it needs tweaking. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, it's, there's so many different ways, different, like we've talked about, different avenues for comics to come out and how to get them into people's hands. And um, I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to – if you can get someone interested in your story and um, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of nervous because I know that there's a lot of Frankenstein esque stories currently out in the works coming out later. Um, yeah, it's true. So it's I'm, sort of, you know, it's hard, it's hard to balance that. Like, you know, with the same thing with the fair, anything fairy tale, like, I mean, you're just, 
you know, you have a story that you want to tell, you just got to realize that you're going to be compared. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm, well, I know that there's a image book coming out about Frankenstein, and it's more about Frank, Frankenstein's monster being a woman instead, um, which I thought was interesting. I thought it was interesting because uh, I was talking about it with Joe Isma because we worked on Art Monster, and um, we had pitched Art Monster the image maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and we're, we were thinking, hmm, maybe this is why it didn't get picked up because the stories are somewhat similar. Um, I go in a completely different direction in the sense that I create this bizarre love triangle uh, in the story, which I'm pretty sure this other one won't. Um, and it's just a younger cast. You know, I, I think that it's interesting to put someone like Dr. Frankenstein into a setting that, you know, um, evokes thinking outside the box, like in any medium, not just your own goals, but like to be around other people that think outside the box, live outside the box, just are unique and odd and different. Um, and I think from that situation, from that, that environment, it can spawn a lot of different things, which is, you know, I, I kind of let the story um, naturally progress out of that because, you know, the people that you meet will influence your choices in some way. And, and the people he meets aren't just like, they're not just normal students. They're people that are creating things that have things to say, um, so it's, it's nice to bounce this, the protagonist off of, uh, these other characters. With the, the version that you've created here, um, uh, like tr traditionally what we know of, of the Frankenstein story is that there's electricity that brings, uh, human tissue to life. Um, but because I know that your you at least have interests in the modern world around you and technology and stuff like that are you are you actually like researching and utilizing real scientific practices that are being tested right now that's, because there's a, that's a there's a lot going on yeah that's a really great question um yeah when i was looking up the original story and just looking up you know water and electricity and re, you know reanimating the dead um I was pulling from a couple different uh, perspectives. Like I, I love uh, Reanimator. It's just one of those cult classics that I've always. I, I didn't. I saw it late in the game. Like I think I only watched it maybe a couple years ago. Um, but you know, in that in that story, there's this serum that that is used to reanimate the dead. And and um, I really, it was hard to find anything that was grounded in reality somewhat that could support the, the idea of reanimating the dead. Um, so what I came up with was, you know, a, a piece of technology that is um, revealed in the, I guess, the second issue, um, a very small piece of technology that uh, Victor doesn't, you know, necessarily realize he has or what it is. Um, and that kind of is the catalyst that propels him into successfully doing what he wants to do. Um, and I, I, I wanted to kind of make his, his journey a little bit of a struggle, even though he knows he has a clear idea of what he wants. That doesn't mean you can necessarily execute it right away. Like it takes revising. It takes innovation. It takes thinking outside, you know, whatever ideas or preconceptions you have for something and going a step further with it. Um, so, yeah, he's trying to do what he had a vision of, which is 
really not that unfamiliar to most readers where it's, you know, a, a water bath with electricity coursing through the body. Um, but in this instance, it doesn't really work. Um, so, you know, he had this, this idea, which to him feels very familiar. Um, but I've introduced, I guess, a, a new piece to it that, um, gets him, gets him to his goal. And, and it is kind of, it's technology. So it, I, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily modern technology, but I think it's enough for the reader to maybe suspend a little disbelief on, on the, um, reality of how it might actually work and um yeah just see where it goes now that i realize your easter egg um that you're you're bringing in this one steampunk type of element without it even being a steampunk story yeah um and it's you know it's one of those things where because I, you know, I try to keep up with science news and stuff, and um, it, it's amazing what's possible. I mean, there's probably stuff that's so possible, and we just, you know, it's in a lab and nobody's talking oh, about it, or it's, you know, there's ethical considerations. Obviously, Frankenstein's a, a lot about it. <laughs> right. Um, there, there is an uh, an episode of Elementary a few weeks ago, and this. Um, person grows copies of their own ears on their back really yeah and my mom's like oh come on and i said no and she's like you have to tell me she's like you would know at the end of it she's like is this i'm like well i said well they do it on mice yeah. so yeah i'm like yeah if they can do it on mice probably yeah <laughs> and she's like how how did you know that <laughs> i'm like because i was just reading it like yeah. <laughs> i was like <laughs> you know and and you know and i think about um the the progress that they've made on 3D printing. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the materials right now are are a little bit sturdy, and they're working on on what kind of materials they can feasibly use. Um, so the stuff's got more flexibility to it, and um, I don't know what that would ab- do to absorption qualities or anything either. But um, you know, people have had entire pelvic bones replaced pieces of their skulls replaced and the thing is at some point you have to realize that the human body that bones were actually bones have living quality to them so replacing them with plastic is fabulous and gets you to perhaps your dying day but it's really not ideal i mean you need you need cells that produce white blood cells and, and red blood cells yeah. <laughs> and that's got to come from somewhere so it's not going to come from plastic i mean the thing with technology is that um let's take apple for example so when i working for the for the company as long as i have um the one question that technicians that i worked with we'd always ask whenever they'd unveil a new product was how how far ahead are they thinking like it seems like they're there there's never a shortage of ideas or devices that they can release to the public and, you know, discussing with some people that have worked in engineering and work at Cupertino. um, Apple has, has patents on a lot of things that haven't even been used for development yet. They just buy up a lot of patents or buy up pieces of technology because they believe that there's potential for it later. So the most recent example is solid state drives. So most of the new products, the computers, the MacBook Airs, MacBook Pro Retinas have these solid state drives, which are 
just they look like a stick of gum. They're they're as thin as a stick of gum. And yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was reading about them and I couldn't figure out what the hell they were. Yeah, so so there's no moving parts to them. So the failure rate is far less than a regular um, serial ATA drive, which has a platter and it has to spin spin at a certain dozen times per minute. Um, so they bought up all of the flash based technology. This was like five or six years ago. And, you know, when when you work for the company, you know that they have a reason for it. And I got some insight recently about how far ahead they think. So the iPod and the iPhone, they had a very clear concept of it, I'd say maybe 10 years ago. Um, And they knew when they were going to release it. That's how far like they have these things laid out anywhere between five to 10 years in advance. So things that we're going to see in the next few years, we're like, whoa, that's amazing. They're like, yeah, we, we know. And that's just how that technology stays ahead of the curve. It has to, because, you know, they need to keep innovating and it's really thinking ahead. Um, so that blows my mind because I, I don't think that way other than like wishful thinking. Like <laughs> yeah, I really, yeah. I really, really yeah. freaking need a teleporter because I'm sick of right. commuting or a hoverboard or something, you know, yeah, you know, a hoverboard's not going to do it. They're for fun. I mean, I, you know, or maybe getting over large puddles. I, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, the drones are the big thing these days and all and whatever. I'm like, I don't give a shit about the drones. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I, I'm like, get me a goddamn teleporter already <laughs> because this is ridiculous. I mean, That's just our, our our highway infrastructure is absurd. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, you and I are in the Northeast. It's we've now been riddled with the snowpocalypses every couple weeks and the potholes. It's pothole season. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, uh, the amount of fumes and exhaust, all that crap that comes out of driving. I'm like, you know, I enjoy driving when I'm not stressed about right. it. You know, it's very freeing and can be relaxing and it can be fun and the windows are down, whatever. I'm like, but when you just have to do it, it's miserable. Agreed. Especially in the snow, especially when I got I got caught in a squall maybe a month ago, which I didn't know what a squall was. And it sounds awful. It, it, it's, it sounds like, oh, you know, a flurry of snow. No big deal. I get caught in this thing and it happens so quickly that I'm, I'm driving down Route 7 to my house and I'm maybe 15, 20 miles away. And one minute. It's clear skies. I can see the truck in front of me, which is maybe 30 feet in front of me. And then suddenly it's this this flurry of snow and it's so dense and so fast in, in, in velocity that I can't, the truck immediately disappears. And all of a sudden I'm looking in all my mirrors and it's just white. It's like being stuck in the middle of a snow globe. And I didn't even know I was if I was on the right side of the road. Like, I didn't see a shoulder. I didn't know if I should pull over. And I ended up having to pull over. And it was one of the scariest things I've ever have, ha- had to drive there. Like, yeah, because one minute you see traffic and then the next minute you don't. And there are still cars traveling on the road. Um, so, yeah, a teleporter would be nice. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, I, I have no concept as to how that works. And then, there, you know. There's like the people who who can watch Star Trek and literally start piecing together things like of how the Enterprise would work and they have their own plans on, you know, uh, on graph paper. I'm like, I don't care. I'm I'm the same way about my car now. Like when I was a teenager, I really like wanted to know how cars work. I don't care. I just want it to work. (laughs) 
you know, that's how I see the majority of people with technology view it. Like, there's two types of minds. There are the people that want to know the form and function, and there's the others that just like the surface of it. Um, and that's fine. You know, it's designed to be easy. It's designed to, you know, make your day-to-day uh, simpler. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, technology is an interesting thing, and, and I think in relations to Art Monster, I think that's what pulls it out of um, – a past story. I think what, you know, puts it in, in the present day is my idea of, of including a piece of technology, even though that, that technology might come from the past, it gives it a more modern um, perspective. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and it also kind of fills in some, some holes in the story that I was struggling with when I was, when I was writing it. But uh, I think, I think it'll be interesting. And I, I think that um, anybody that likes the Frankenstein story, any, version of it um i I hope would would like this one so what is the plan then for the number of uh chapters that you're going to be releasing or however you know if you're calling i guess they're called issues still um it's going to be eight issues um i'm still on the fence if i'm going to release them in the shorter formats that i have i have spoken to monkey brain and they said really you can do whatever you want we prefer because of the price point to to limited to maybe 16 pages but you know creators are doing longer than that and if you want to do that that's fine if you want to release it bi-monthly that's fine you know whatever works for your team's schedule um so yeah it's designed to be eight shorter issues um which would then hopefully get collected um and printed through a print publisher um and um yeah the second issue just came out last this past wednesday um the team is going to we're going to regroup uh, and try to get a couple more issues done before we release the next one, just so we can kind of release it at a more um, consistent uh, pace. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Eight issues is what it's set for. OK, sounds good. And um, so it's already available for people to start checking out. Yeah. Uh, and they just have to go to Monkey Brain and. Um, where else can people get information, you know, about you and what, and what other scripts you're working on and such? Um, I have a blog, uh, clumpoftrees.wordpress.com, although I haven't updated recently. Um, I've been using Tumblr a little bit more. Um, so that's just my name on that is just clump of trees. Um, but, uh, I really, I've just been tweeting a lot of updates. Um, I've been working on a couple bigger projects at the moment that um, are really kind of testing my uh, my ability to write under a deadline, which is something I've been waiting for for like six or seven years now. So it, it feels good to have figured out my own process and, and I'm sticking to it and I'm producing the work in a timely manner and I can depend on how fast I can write a script. So it's been, it's been good. Um, and hopefully... You know, some of that information will be announced uh, in the summer, maybe. But, um, you know, big things. Okay. Are you doing any conventions this year? Oh, I was supposed to go to Emerald City. I was really excited about it. Um, I went the last three years in a row, and the one year that I, I had to cancel, there's all these awesome parties. Like, Curtis is doing a Rat Queens party, which sounds amazing. And um, I know Kelly Sue DeConnick is doing a party for Captain Marvel. And... Um, 
yeah, all this, I, I think it's going to be the best Emerald City yet, and I'm missing it. So um, I don't think I'm going to be doing another con until probably New York. Um, but even that is up in the air because I'm also getting married the week after. So, yeah. You should get married at the show. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can have a big after party. It'll be great. Uh, I doubt that my fiance would go for that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she likes art, and she's actually gotten into the comic books. I actually, since she's spent so much, she spent so much time with me, and she sees what I do, uh, it inspired her to actually put on an art exhibit at the museum for next, for the fall of 2015, which is, um, East Asian epics retold through comic books. So it's mostly Korean, Chinese, and Indian art, um, or folklore, I should say, mythology that's retold through comics. Um, so, you know, we were in New York the, the past weekend for a big uh, art auction weekend. Um, so she was there looking at art. And, you know, again, talking about art innovation, like we, we went to an opening at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and we saw some really amazing um Asian art pieces, everything from paintings to um you know old sort of relics um and it's really interesting to see what people are into and what what really sells and what doesn't um so yeah you know it, it kind of everything influences everything and and uh it's it's cool to see her world because it's it's mostly older stuff like she she thinks it's funny that I talk about creators a lot for either friends or people I respect and they're people that you could actually meet. And she talks about artists that have been dead for thousands of years. So it's right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, a, a different perspective. Um, but uh, yeah, it's cool to see, you know, her world and see how, you know, she teaches about um, a lot of different subjects in East Asian art. And it's actually, we've kind of, we have a parallel path in the sense that I've realized a lot of my stories deal with, school like classrooms and you know funerals actually so um she does do a lot of um lectures on funerary arts and and burial sites and and some really cool things and she's actually really educated me on on my own topics that i like to explore um actually in the second issue of art monster there's a a classroom scene with a professor giving a lecture and she actually totally uh, scripted that that scene. Um, I told her what I was going for, and, and I wrote it. And she's like, "Well, that's not actually accurate. This is how someone would actually say it in, in a in a classroom." So uh, it's been cool to collaborate with her um, on some of these things. Well, that's cool. So, all right. So, if your honeymoon doesn't get in the way of New York Comic Con, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. But uh, yeah, what about you? Any any cons this year? Um, well, I got really sick for the, the first one of the year, so I didn't get to go. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm hoping to get to Awesome Con in April. That's actually um, on my radar. Um, so that's that will actually end up being the first thing. And then, I, you know, free comic book day. I like to do the small things. Um, you know, free comic book day at Comic Fusion. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, New York is doing a special edition Comic-Con, which is just their, the artist alley right. of the regular big New York Comic-Con. So I've contacted them and asked, uh, you know, applied as press because they are not offering professional badges, which I find very unusual. Oh, that is unusual. So um, you're, you know, I'm like, okay, well, let me see if this works. I don't know. I'm not very popular, so 
whatever. <laughs> we'll give it a sh- give it a shot. Um, but because the artist alley portion of New York Comic Con is the only part I care about, the fact that they are launching a show just yeah. of that in, in June intrigues me a lot. So, um, so I'm not sure if I will be there or not. We'll see. I, it's a long application process. And um, usually when it comes to the big show, the big New York show, uh, I will pop in for a day or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I might end up doing that, too, just for New York Comic Con popping in for... Yeah. I mean, I hate to miss... It's You know, the show itself is is something to see, and I, I do like panels, but I find them very... Like, I don't feel like standing in line for an hour to go to a panel anymore. Sure, I just sure. don't. Um, but there's people that I want to see, and I will only see them there because it's, you know, it's such a big chore for everybody's travel schedules to come together. Some people do 20 shows a year, you know, and you know that you can catch up to them somewhere. Um, and other people only will do one big show. So it's like, okay, I need to, you know, I need to get there. Um, you know, so it's great. That's, you know, folks like come in from London and stuff. I mean, where else am I going to see them except at New York? Yeah. Yeah. That's how, that's why I was also upset about Emerald city because, um, uh, Chris Thompson from the Pop Culture Hound podcast in London uh, is actually going to be at Emerald City, and we were supposed to hang out, and no, that's not going to happen. But yeah, I heard Emerald was a great show, and MegaCon is going on like as we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you know, we'll see. Um, yeah, I, you know, I just it's interesting because it's like the first year that I'm really buckling down on the work, um, and just kind of I can't really justify the cost of going to a con just to. Just to hang out, like, I, I need to really treat it like a business trip. Um, and, you know, I don't really have anything I'm, I'm ready to pitch just yet. So I do have stuff in the works. And, you know, it just seems smarter to just focus on that and get, get that out and done. Um, and maybe 2015 will be a little bit different. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I think the presence that of people tabling at conventions is obviously going to be really different because of so much more being available digitally that, you know, um, I guess some publishers just uh, have like the codes or something Mm -hmm. like checkout codes at their tables or that, you know, and they've got like postcards and prints and that sort of thing without books actually being there. So it's, you know, it depends on what your if your consumers are adapting or not. Sure. You know, so it's a, we're in a, an interesting transition and we'll see how, how things start changing as we go. Um, but, uh, Jeremy, so I will of course always see you on Twitter. Jeremy underscore Holt. Yep. Is a, and, uh, you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber. Um, so it's always great catching up with you. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks for having me back. So guys, check out art monster over at monkey brain. And, um, Jeremy is always up for fielding questions. So if you're on Twitter, don't be shy. If he doesn't know the answer, he'll just tell you to go ask Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe find the answer. Like My job as yeah. a technician is not always knowing the answer right away, but being able to find the answer. Being able to find it. So, we've, yeah, we've got guys at our disposal that are so great, like Ryan, Ryan Lindsay and Curtis Weave. It's like so great. It's like, call Aller. No, just go ask them. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's awesome, Jeremy. So thanks, as always, for being here. And um, thank you guys for listening to Vodka O'Clock. It's been my pleasure. Don't forget that you can find everything else at amberunmasked.com. Cheers. Cheers.